Good afternoon, New York, and the rest of our listeners around the globe. My name is June Stoyer, and I'm the host of the Organic View Radio Show. Our podcast is available on iTunes, Zoom, and you can also visit our website at www.theorganicview.com. If you'd like to be on the show or would like to find out about sponsorship opportunities, please contact us at questions at theorganicview.com. Today's show is sponsored by Eden Foods, the most trusted name in certified organic clean food. When you shop online at EdenFoods.com, enter the coupon code ORGVIEW to receive 20% off any regularly priced items, excluding cases. For other promotional offers, please visit TheOrganicView.com's website. And don't forget to check out our contest section. So Foxiflor is back in the news. Recently, EPA permitted the toxic pesticide Sulfoxiflor re-registration. On today's show, Michelle Coppy, who's the program director from the Pollinator Stewardship Council, is going to talk about what this means for beekeepers. So I'd like to welcome back to the show Michelle Coppy. Michelle, great to have you back. Hey, well, thank you. It's wonderful to be here again. Michelle, before we begin, can you just quickly explain to our listeners what the Pollinator Stewardship Council does? Well, the Pollinator Stewardship Council is a nonprofit organization of beekeepers. And our sole focus is to educate and advocate about the impact of pesticides upon our pollinators, our managed pollinators as well as our native pollinators. Well, it's great to know that your organization exists because we definitely need people out there fighting to make the changes happen that are needed. Now, in regards to this chemical, let's begin by just talking about what sulfoxiflor does and how it impacts bees. Well, sufoxiflor is a uh, highly toxic pesticide to bees. The label clearly states it is highly toxic to bees when bees are exposed to it on blooming plants or weeds. And it was originally being used when it did not have all of the data to, to really show the research on its full effects upon an entire hive of bees. We knew it had an acute kill uh, aspect to it, but what was it its what was the effect of sufoxiflor on the brood, on the lifespan of a hive? So that kind of tier two data was not collected by EPA, and that's what inspired us to work with other beekeeping groups and beekeepers to file a, um, an appeal in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals to have the court look at EPA's rationalization for approving sufoxiflor and point out that EPA could not use their best judgment that it was okay to register it. They actually had to have evidence and science behind their judgment. So the court agreed with us, and they vacated and remanded Sufoxiflor uh, back in 2015. And they were supposed to, the court said, EPA had to request the manufacturer provide additional research data about the effects of Sufoxiflor upon honeybees. Well, sufoxiflor got re-registered by EPA, and the way um, EPA did this is they did not collect additional research data, so they didn't really follow the court's guidelines, but what they did was they reduced the amount of the active ingredient, so they cut the active ingredient in half. So previously, they were using it, at, in a sense, a double-strength amount, which research tells us when you, you know, use way too much of a product of a pesticide, especially you start to build up the resistance in the pest. So it's interesting that they cut the amount in half and it's still supposed to be effective, but they also made some changes of uh, which crops it can be used on, 
the timing of the application on certain crops. They have reduced, they have uh, prohibited homeowners from having access to this. They're putting in some 12-foot field buffers to try and protect uh, blooming vegetation around the crop field. So they've used the label to mitigate the risk. They still did not get the additional research. Which crops in particular did they eliminate? They removed um, some of the crops like cotton and citrus and soybeans. And there are certainly, let's see... They also and they also defined when you could use it either before bloom or after bloom, but they're trying to keep it from being used on bloom. But even for those crops using it before bloom, they have different time frames of uh, whether it's seven days or fourteen days before bloom that the pesticide can be used. But some of these pesticides again have a long half life and will still stay active. So even using it on leafy vegetables, bulb vegetables. Um, then you've got, those are for uh, harvesting before bloom, so you can apply it before bloom on vegetables and uh, for other plants. They're allowing it after the bloom on berries, on canola, on fruiting vegetables, on uh, palm fruit, on some ornamentals, potatoes, stone fruit, beans, tree nuts, and pistachio. And that's on berries. On, on berries and things, yes, and that's after bloom. Now, again, how long this stephoxifor is going to stay active in the soil or if it drifts onto other things that are in bloom? Now, if it's going to drift onto other things in bloom you know, on, the, on the edges, then that's still going to kill pollinators. And, and a 12-foot buffer really is not enough distance, and researchers are saying that's not enough of a buffer distance to make sure you have a 12-foot buffer. I know there's been some research in, I think it was in Iowa, that looked at buffer strips and was starting to determine that with uh, the neonic pesticides, you al- almost had to have a buffer for the buffer strip <laughs> so that you had to have your crop field, a buffer strip that was not pollinator attractive, and then you could have the pollinator uh, buffer strip. But you, you were almost having to have an extra buffer strip to protect the buffer because of the way these pesticides drift. That's ridiculous. It's just it just uh, frustrates me in one sense. It's wonderful that yes, EPA is trying to, as they always do, mitigate the risk by the label direction. One of the other things they did was they're taking off the B hazard statement in the environmental hazard section because EPA stated they feel that people don't read the environmental hazard statement on the labels. So it's interesting when they will admit that people don't read labels and yet they're still trying to use the label to mitigate the risk. What are they doing to enforce, or should I say reinforce, that this is hazardous to honeybees? They are then moving the comment that this product is hazardous to bees by putting it in the directions for use so that the directions for use will say do not apply when bees are in the area. But you still need in the environmental hazard section, and that's what we feel, they still need to put in, in the environmental hazard section that this is toxic to bees. You need to then doubly enforce that message fine, put it in the directions for use, but still keep it in the environmental hazard section that this product is toxic to bees. Because as we, as, as any teacher will tell you, as any comedian will tell you, you know, something works best when you say it three times, two to three times. So let's put it on the label enough. Let's use the little bee icon that says this is harmful to bees. Let's put it in the environmental hazard section that says this product is harmful to bees. And let's put it in the directions for use as well. But moving it from the environmental hazard section, we feel weakens the label 
and weakens the information provided to pesticide applicators and farmers, again putting bees at risk. Getting back to what you were saying about the crops that were removed, I think it's interesting that citrus is one of them because right now the citrus farmers are battling a major crisis trying to sustain the crops. Right. The citrus farmers are dependent upon the commercial migratory beekeepers to pollinate those crops. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's, it's, again, just they're trying to find different ways to protect the bees from these bee toxic pesticides. And even EPA, I think, is starting to realize it's going to be difficult. When, again, pesticides do move through the system, whether it's on the air or through the soil or through the water, um, so that we can use the label to mitigate the risk to only a certain point, and then even that breaks down and does not protect our pollinators. Because when you throw in the human factor of people having to read the label and follow directions, that's also a problem. So at least they did take the sufoxiflor, this highly toxic pesticide, away from homeowner use because far too many homeowners just have this um, bad idea in a sense, this misrepresentation that simply because EPA registers a pesticide, it's safe. And they use that word safe in so many ways when, again, EPA always mitigates the risk by the label. So people have got to read directions and realize that any pesticide is, is engineered to kill to kill something, whether it's a a weed, a fungus, um, or an insect. Michelle, what I don't understand is sulfoxiflor is a chemical that targets the sap-sucking insects. That that was one of the reasons why they were pushing it for citrus and also for cotton. So it almost undermines the whole initial goal of using it for those crops, and now they've removed those crops from the label. Right. For those crops, and then even though they still have some bee attractive plants on there, but then they're allowing it to be used after uh, petal fall or, you know, after the bloom is done, whether it's canola, some beans, whether it's broccoli, carrots, and onions. Um, You know, even um, they are removing it for sod farms, so at least the pesticides won't be around if there's some clover that happens to be in the sod. But it's, it's interesting in that when we try to deal with um, and I, I talked to an entomologist about this. There are, in a sense, kind of two types of insects, roughly, loosely. Soft and squishy, hard and crunchy. There are those that are sucking, piercing, chewing insects, and those are also honeybees and mostly other pollinators. So when you're trying to kill a pest that is a chewing, sucking insect, it's pretty much a given. You're probably going to kill honeybees, too, which are soft and squishy and piercing, sucking, chewing insects. So whether they're leafcutter bees, that are going to go out into these fields that have sufoxiflor sprayed on them and they are using, you know, cutting out portions of the leaves and simply to make their nests, they're going to be exposed to sufoxiflor. So it, it is a concern and I find it interesting that there was a report that came out globally that was, uh, it was called a horizon scan of future threats and opportunities for pollinators and pollination. And they found that the uh, this systemic class of pesticides, the sufoxamine, are the second highest priority issue threatening pollinators. And here we are re-registering sufoxiflor. It's baffling. The reason that I brought up the citrus and the cotton is because from what I understand, that was one of the reasons why they initially granted the emergency registration. So it's just quite interesting that it's come to this point. 
Right. There were certainly a number of emergency exemptions throughout this year in a number of the crops that are, of course, still included, uh, cotton, uh, citrus, um, certainly pistachios, I think even pecans. Uh, so, you know, they didn't really change much. They're trying to protect pollinators. But again, this is a bee-toxic pesticide. So it, bees are still going to die. We can try to do our best, and hopefully farmers will read those directions for use and not apply these products when the crops are in bloom. Um, I'm just uh, It just concerns me that, again, when we have a global uh, community of researchers that come out and, and point out that the class of pesticides called sufoxamines are the second highest threat to pollinators globally, and we've re-registered it in this country. Michelle, let's talk about tank mixing for a moment. Well, it almost seems as though unless the chemical blows up, they go with it. Well, correct. Uh, it's certainly the, the label directions for tank mixing are very broad for the typical pesticide that it will say uh, to mix a little bit of each pesticide into a glass jar and pretty much if it doesn't gum up, stay separated, foam up or explode, go ahead and apply it to your crop. Now, with sufoxiflor, they did add a line item that the pesticide applicator or the farmer must look at a website within one week of the application to determine if uh, sufoxiflor can be mixed with anything else. So that's you know a week before someone's applying it. So, but this is the only one so far that will say that you have to check a website um, to a week ahead before applying the pesticide to see if it can be tank mixed or not. But tank mixes are, are creating these unknown chemistries that EPA is not evaluating. Certainly, I, I, to a point, can understand it. There's almost 100,000 chemicals out there. How could they know which is, you know, the, the combinations were, are so many, we wouldn't use any pesticides. But farmers need to understand also that they are creating all new chemistry in their tank. When their pesticide spray tank is so hot to the touch because of the synergisms they just mixed up, why would they want to spray it on their crops? So that, that obviously when you have a temperature change in this chemistry, it should tell you there's a synergism going on. So that just this analysis of if it doesn't gum up or foam up or explode and that it's okay to apply it to the food, it, that's really um, not very good label directions. So the tank mixing has been an issue, continues to be an issue for beekeepers especially with things like fungicides, which are never tested for bees um, because it's meant to kill a fungus, so they don't feel they have to test it on bees. But yet these fungicides are getting mixed with insect growth regulators and other insecticides or fertilizers, creating all new chemistry, which then this is something new our bees have to fight. Michelle, what are the next steps as far as trying to get EPA to reconsider? Well, certainly we're going to be monitoring what's going on out there with how it is used in the field. We're going to be working with our beekeepers to report their incidents um, around the use of sufoxiflor as well as all of the other pesticides. But with, Because without this data, then EPA thinks everything is hunky-dory. And when I hear anecdotally from beekeepers that they lose typically 20% of their bees in every crop they pollinate, because of the pesticides, we have issues. But beekeepers have got to report their losses, whether it's sublethal losses or acute kills. And what's happening now is it's mostly these sublethal losses that they will pollinate, say, a crop in June, 
They might move to another crop in July, and by August now their bees are starting to fall apart, and they're not sure which, which pesticide kicked it off. Or it's the synergism of combining the pesticides from June with the ones in July that have now built up in the hive, in the honey, and the pollen, and the wax, and now the bees are crashing. So we have got to collect this data. We have got to get beekeepers to report their losses instead of just complaining to each other. Thank you. Michelle, I appreciate all of your time for coming on the show today. Could you just once again share your website with our listeners? Yes, that would be wonderful. So the Pollinator Stewardship Council website is www.pollinatorstewardship.org. Folks, it is that time of the year again. If you can make a donation or if you're looking for an organization to make a donation to, please consider supporting their efforts. Thank you for tuning in. This has been June Stoyer with the Organic View Radio Show. Have a great afternoon.